if you like audiobooks or audio shows, check out a free trial of Audible. Just click the link in the description. You are listening to Mindshock True Crime. This is the Stephen Avery series. Episode 4, Timelines and Profiles. This is your host, Bruce McGuire. And Maxwell Powers. And Johnny Mills. If you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. And make sure you're subscribed to the channel and hit the bell notification for notifications. You can also check us out on social media, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, and Patreon. So we've been covering Stephen Avery for a number of episodes now. We've been going over Bernstein pretty extensively. So what do we think so far? I mean, it was pretty much an obvious frame-up job. In our last episode, we revealed key details proving Basically, I mean, is there any shadow of a doubt even left that everyone from Kuserik to Vogel to the officer, the sheriff's, just everyone in the sheriff's department, they knew he was innocent and they knew Gregory Allen was guilty. And according to some witnesses and theories, the officers were actually there at the time of the assault on Bernstein and refused to chase Gregory Allen. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Maxwell? Just obvious frame up job or what? Um, obvious frame-up job. Johnny? Yes. Uh, yeah, they just really don't like Stephen Avery. Yeah, and we went into reasons why in the previous episode. Just a lot of different reasons in the community and family history. have seen every episode, right? Johnny? Yeah, I've seen it. Making a murder? You so, gotta catch up wait, on so that. So, I'm eight episodes. How far behind am I? Because I've only... I've as far as possible. Like <laughs> what always. episode you want to? Actually, 15 minutes into the first one. Uh, so you have you have nine episodes and uh, 30 minutes to go. Okay. So today we're going to go over, we're going to get into Teresa Hallback. So Avery gets out of prison, and then they put him back in prison. They seem to have a knack for locking him up. Now the question is, so it seems to me I haven't seen any legitimate arguments for Avery being guilty of Bernstein, the Bernstein assault in 1985. A lot of people seem to think he actually is guilty in the Hallback case, though. There's quite a few people who believe he's guilty and that the police were simply framing a guilty man. We already went over in the previous episodes why that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if they know for sure he's guilty, why are they contaminating the evidence by making it a frame-up job, increasing the chance that he would get off? Because <laughs> if it's that, and, it, and if it's not that obvious that he's guilty, then why are they framing him without knowing? And I brought this up as well. What if they think he's innocent? when he's actually guilty, which is why they're framing him. That's the most bizarre theory, I think. But once again, looking at the reactions of his parents and everything, it really does seem like he is innocent. It's like the lie detector whole $36 test. million dollar thing yeah. that's got them so, like shook. Yep. We're going to go over the timelines and profiles in this case. We're going to go through dates and conflicts of interest like the $36 million lawsuit and officers participating in the investigation and so-called uncovering evidence or planting evidence, depending on which theory you believe, that are actually named in the lawsuit. <laughs> like, that's bizarre, isn't it, Maxwell? Yeah, bizarre. <laughs> So, January 3rd, 1985, Avery is brought in for questioning over the alleged confrontation with his cousin, Sandy Morris. July 29th, 1985, Penny Bernstein is attacked and sexually assaulted. December 14th, 1985, Avery is found guilty of Bernstein's assault and sentenced to 32 years in prison. 1995, Gregory Allen allegedly says he committed the assault and someone else is in jail for it. But no report is filed, although a phone call is made. Not only was nothing done, but the existence of the phone call was never even disclosed. 
during the Wisconsin Attorney General's 2004 investigation into wrongdoing. The officers involved included Sergeant, Sergeant Andrew Colburn, who took the initial call from Brown County about Gregory Allen. He testified that he discussed the call with Lieutenant James Lank and transferred the call to Gene Koosh, who at the time was chief of the investigative unit. It was also, he was also Kusarek's right-hand man and the one who did the composite drawing of Avery in 1985, supposedly from the mugshot. Insanity all around. So during this time, Avery is actually in court, and he refused to plead guilty. And he took a series of appeals all the way up to the Supreme Court. In 1995, his lawyers had scrapings from under Penny Bernstein fingernails tested for DNA. So these samples can only be broken down into alleles, with Bernstein and Avery sharing the same alleles. But another group of alleles was discovered in the scrapings. Avery's lawyers said that these belonged to the real assaulter. But despite this evidence, the appeal was denied, with the judge claiming there was no evidence to prove that the alleles didn't come from Bernstein's husband or another person who might not be the attacker. So I guess he's the judge is saying she's just going around scratching everybody? I don't really get that line. If anything, it how does that prove Avery's guilty? Because even if it could be Avery, it could be someone else too. Don't you have to actually be proven guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt to be convicted? Mm. Apparently not in this judge's courtroom. As Stephen Glynn, Avery's civil rights lawyer, notes in Making a Murder, if you ever re- want to read an opinion that will show you how strongly the system is designed to perpetuate a conviction as opposed to examine whether or not someone could in fact be innocent, read the Court of Appeals decision in the Stephen Avery case. Okay, another important point that we went over is that cool, Sherry Coolhane, the DNA lab tech, actually delayed the test that would eventually set Avery free and exonerate him for a whole year. So he sat in prison an extra year for no reason. Well, actually, the whole time for no reason. But (laughs) bizarre. That last year probably felt exactly like the other 18 years. So September (laughs) September 11th, 2003, Avery is exonerated and released from prison. Immediately after Avery's release, Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department sends sends out memos no employees shall make any comments concerning the Stephen Avery case. And this is directly from Sheriff Peterson. So what does that mean? That they're You're not allowed to talk about it, the Stephen Avery case, as soon as he gets out. It's kind of weird timing, right? Because if he's out and it's over. Okay. Avery does, because Avery did not file any lawsuit at that point. It was October 12, 2004, Avery files the $36 million lawsuit for wrongful imprisonment. October 11th, 2005, so nearly a year later, Lieutenant Lank and Sandy Morris are deposed for this investigation. October 13th, 2005, Colburn, Judy Dvorak, and Sheriff Peterson are deposed. Maxwell, are you following? Following. <laughs> this is very critical. On October 26th, Eugene Kush is deposed. October 31st, Teresa Hallback is last seen. So is it too, it's kind of coincidental, all these, as soon as the actual investigation is started and these people become, start being deposed, someone goes missing. Isn't that weird? Do you find that weird, Maxwell? 
Yeah, it's kind of weird. On November 9th, Avery's arrested in connection with Hallback's death. When Stephen Avery's civil case was opened, it was against the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department, Sheriff Tom Kucerich, and District Attorney Dennis Vogel. After the revelations of the 1995 call, it was expected that the $36 million lawsuit would also include Kush, Coburn, Lank, and Peterson. Want to hear something funny? So Avery's arrested on November 9th. Mm-hmm. Guess who was going to be deposed on November 10th? Kucerich. So conveniently, Avery's arrested right before Kucerich's deposition, which possibly could have been the most damning because he's the one that was pivotal in the setup of 85. Vogel was set to be deposed on the 15th. So there was also a filing from Kucerich's insurer, State Farm, which called into question whether, who would be uh, who would be responsible for these payments because if they botched this investigation and not just botched it but if they actually framed him intentionally the entire 36 million dollars would not be covered by the insurance company <laughs> isn't that interesting so on January 17th 2006 Avery pleads not guilty March 3rd 2006 Brendan Dassey Avery's 16 year old nephew is arrested in connection with Hallback's death. March 18, 2007, Avery found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. April 25, 2007, Dassey found guilty of murder, sentenced to life in prison, possibility of parole after 41 years. December 18, 2005, Making of a Murderer, released on Netflix. December 27, Dassey's lawyers file a lawsuit alleging arrest and imprisonment was unlawful, which is under review. January 8, 2016, Kathleen Zellner takes Avery's case, claiming she won't quit until he's out. January 18, 2016, Sheriff Kenneth Peterson interviewed on Dr. Phil. By 2005, Sheriff Kucerich was retired, and Sheriff Kenneth Peterson took his position. In the 2005 deposition, Peterson denied knowing about the 95 phone call. But in the Dr. Phil interview, he admitted that he heard Sergeant Colburn discussing the phone call. Isn't that interesting? Huh. So this is directly from the Dr. Phil interview on January 18, 2016. I don't remember anything in 03. I remember Sergeant Colburn talking about it in 95, but he didn't talk to me about it. Peterson reveals to Dr. Phil more than likely it would have been Gene Kush and or Sheriff Tom Kucerich. Dr. Phil asked, you remember hearing about the call back in 95? Yes, he replies. So you knew the call came in 1995, Dr. Phil probes. So why would you not say, we need to follow this up, let's do some more investigation, Dr. Phil asks. That would have been up to the investigative unit at the time, Peterson says. But but he didn't tell them about it? <laughs> so it's up to them. I actually watched not. this uh, like yesterday. The interview? Yeah. What would you think about it? It was like three minutes. I mean, it's a guy who's just trying to like play dumb. Yeah. Pretty much like. <laughs> it's the whole thing is just, and, and notice how none of them are apologizing for the 85 yeah. conviction. Yeah. Like let's say, because if, really, if you really think he's guilty, 
in 2005. If you really think he's guilty, you're like, well, you know, I mean, if we had any role in him be having issues in prison that led him to become a murderer, like, that's deeply regrettable that he was sent away in 85 for something he didn't do. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's just kind of weird. Don't you find that weird, yeah. Maxwell? Yeah. Okay. So, August 12th, 2016, Wisconsin federal judge William Duffin overturns Dassey's convictions for murder and sexual assault, writing in his ruling that there were significant doubts as to the reliability of his confession, Duffin went on. These repeated false promises, when considered in conjunction with all relevant factors, most especially Dassey's age, intellectual deficits, and the absence of a supportive adult, rendered Dassey's confession involuntary under the 5th and 14th Amendments. Judge Duffin also ordered that Dassey be released from prison. October 2016, prosecutors for the state of Wisconsin filed court documents opposing Dassey's release from prison and appealed the overturned conviction to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. They claimed Dassey's confession was legitimate and voluntary and that his release would present a danger to society and irreparably harm the Hallback family. The following month, the Seventh Circuit blocked Dassey's release and ordered that he remain in jail pending their decision. Because, I mean, he can't, be go he can't be allowed to go home and watch WrestleMania or whatever that he wanted to do during, the, uh, <laughs> during those uh, confessions. Yeah, that's a travesty. Remember, we talked about it. Like, that whole thing is just bizarre. Mm -hmm. Very, very bizarre. October 2017, Zellner appeals the ruling in Avery's case and points at Bobby Dassey as a new suspect. Do, do you want to go into who Bobby Dassey is, Johnny? Yeah, who's Bobby Dassey? It's his brother. Oh, shit. <laughs> Brendan Dassey, Bobby Dassey. Who's the father of the da of the Brendan and Bobby? Um, well, he has a stepfather now. That's Scott Tadich. Or... And who's their actual father? He's not involved? Mm, he's just... Yeah, he's not he goes there. to he wasn't really in the uh the season too too much, um, but he goes to see Brendan like every oh, week. He does. Yeah, yeah. So it's he like, is involved. Yeah, he's just not much on the show. Huh? What are your thoughts on him? I mean, he was just in like a one episode. Do you remember his name? I don't know something Dassey. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like this Scott guy, Scott Tadich or whatever his name is. Yeah, it's pretty sketchy. Indeed, sketchy man. a lot of sketchy people here. At the end of October 2017, so this is just a year ago, Zellner, as promised, appealed Sue Kiewitz's ruling and submitted new evidence and witness affidavits that had not yet been filed with the court when the judgment was handed down. Her 54-page filing pointed fingers at a new suspect, Bobby Dassey, Brendan Dassey's older brother, and a key witness for the prosecution at Avery's trial. In addition to claiming that Bobby Dassey lied in his testimony, Zellner alleged that new forensic testing performed on the Dassey family computer recovered images of Miss Hallback, many images of violent pornography involving young females being raped and tortured that had been accessed at times when only Bobby Dassey was home. November 2017, Zellner points fingers at Avery's sister and her husband as being part of the cover-up. Less than a week after submitting Avery's appeal, Zellner filed additional documents accusing Barb Janda, Avery's sister, and Brendan and Bobby's mother, and her husband, Scott Tadich, of, is it Tadich or Tadich? They said Tadich. Scott Tadich 
of trying to get rid of evidence that implicated Bobby Dassey in Halbach's murder. December 2017, a federal appeals court reinstates Dassey's conviction. In December 2017, the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals ruled 4-3 to three that Brendan Dassey's confession was not coerced, overturning the decision by Judge Duffin to grant him a new trial. The state court's finding that Dassey's confession was voluntary was not beyond fair debate, but we conclude it was reasonable. The court's decision stated, One of the members of the three-judge panel that initially affirmed Duffin's ruling, Ilana Diamond Rovner, wrote a dissenting opinion calling the court's decision a profound miscarriage of justice. You agree with that, Maxwell? With what? <laughs> what I just said? Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird. So he, got, he was guilty the first time for doing then, something yeah. he possibly didn't even really do. Then it was like... Uh, retried, sort of like a judge ruled, like yeah, he should be free and he should be released, and then they uh, sent it to like the Chicago court. No, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, it's... and then it's just back and forth, back and forth, yeah. back and forth. So like, who's right? Like he was guilty, and then he's like, oh, he's not. Guilty. Yeah, but let's say he's guilty. If he's mentally, if his mental capacity is in question, should he even belong in prison? Like, shouldn't he be in some kind of like mental hospital or something yeah. like that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know the exact uh, extensive. I don't know how extensive his they've even tested him, but so February 2018, Dassey's defense team asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review his case. In February 2018, Dassey's attorneys pursued his last available appeal by filing a writ of certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court, requesting that they review his case. In June 2018, the U.S. Supreme Court declines to hear Brendan Dassey's case. It's kind of sad. As is typical, the Supreme Court did not give a reason for why they would not review the case. Now, that's another big thing. Okay, these people are supposed to be responsible for truth and justice in the criminal system in the country. Shouldn't they at least be required to give a reason? I mean, these are, tax pay these are taxpayers' dollars paying them, and they they're not even required to give a reason? Like, that's just bizarre. So, he, so that basically means he's done? Like until he serves all, 40 years? All out of appeals, Dassey's only hope of overturning his conviction would oh, be to Avery. uncover new evidence and pursue post-conviction relief as Zellner is doing in the Avery case. T July 2018, Zellner asked the Wisconsin Circuit Court for permission to supplement the record with evidence from the Dassey family computer. In July, Zellner filed a 599-page supplement along with a CD-ROM containing 2,449 pages of data downloaded from the Dassey family's laptop computer. Zellner's filing included printouts of some of its most disturbing content, images of violent pornography depicting women being tortured and violated that Zellner said were largely accessed at times when only Bobby Dassey was home. Zellner argued that the laptop evidence would have allowed Avery's trial defense to point to Bobby Dassey as an alternative suspect in Halbach's murder and impeached the credibility of his trial testimony. But the prosecution withheld it from them. If the court finds that the laptop CD was withheld by the prosecution and contains material evidence, Avery should get a new trial for sure. Appellate attorney Erica Souter, an expert in post-conviction issues, told Rolling Stone in July. So what do you guys think? Do you think that Bobby Dassey is, uh, is responsible for Hallback's murder? Uh, I mean, it, it could be a possibility. Judging by those keywords that he typed in, they were kind of... Uh specific chopping up and 
female, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's what he was searching. That's what came up. So he's basically, you're saying it, it almost seemed like he was influenced by these weird sadistic videos online and just carried it oh, out himself? I don't know about that. I just mean like maybe, or that, yeah, or he was just looking up how to do it or what it looks like. Oh, if he wanted to do it beforehand. Yeah. Or did he want to do it because he saw it in the first place? We don't know. Yeah, I don't know. doesn't and even matter if he did it, but yeah, it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. Why is, so... I don't. I st- I'm still not quite sure what Stephen Avery thinks about all this because does he really even talk there's, about a lot of this? If you, we should listen to it, but there's a, a a recorded phone call between Scott Tadich, his wife now, which is Avery's sister. Yes. And Avery in jail. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Actually, yeah. And. The, <laughs> but yeah, he doesn't good, flat out. Good. I'm talking about Stephen Avery, like telling other people like what the oh. deal is because he never really comes out like even when the police like people were asking well how did it get there he's like well the police the police might have put it there that maybe they know i don't know like he doesn't <laughs> ever really put forth theories is that because he's too simple to do so or because he just doesn't want to because it's he thinks it might make him look bad because he's trying to throw the blame on someone else i have to say he does come off as honest to me i'm just mm-hmm. saying so i think what well, i mentioned this several times now if he's guilty he has a split personality or he's this great mastermind genius. What do you think, Maxwell? He's, I don't know, he looks innocent so far to me. Yeah. So let's go over some of these key players that discovered evidence. We have Lieutenant James Lank. So this is a longtime Manitowoc County Sheriff's de- detective. Lank thrust himself into the Teresa Halbach investigation from the outset, even though her disappearance was reported to the neighboring Calumet County Sheriff's Office, not Manitowoc County. Do we find that interesting? Once Stephen Avery emerged as a prime suspect in Halbach's disappearance, Lank discovered critical physical evidence to link Avery to the murder of Halbach. Lank discovered a key to Halbach's RAV4 on the carpeted floor of Avery's bedroom, even though the room had been searched by Calumet County investigators numerous times beforehand. So they miss everything, and Lank finds it. Interesting. Lank was also on the Avery property four months later when a fragmented bullet was discovered inside of Avery's garage days after authorities arrested Avery's nephew, Brendan, in connection with the murder. Avery's lawyers suspect that Lank planted the key and the fragmented bullet to shore up police enforcement's most circumstantial case against Avery. Lank retired a few years ago from Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office. He resides in Green Valley, Arizona. Lank did not respond to phone messages, and no one answered the door January 8th when a USA Today Network reporter from the Arizona Republic rang the bell of his home in a golf course community in Green Valley, south of Tucson. He's also the police officer that called in the license plates. Yeah. We'll get into more specifics and just going a quick overview of all the characters involved so Maxwell can keep up because Maxwell is sharp and on the ball today as usual. Sergeant Andrew Colburn, Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office. On November 8th, 2005, Colburn accompanied Lank to research the inside of Avery's bedroom even though the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office was not supposed to be directly involved in the murder investigation because of a conflict of interest. After Lank and Colburn were inside the bedroom, a RAV4 key was found next to Avery's bed. The key was later determined to contain Avery's DNA. Only weeks before Hallback vanished, Colburn was questioned by civil rights lawyers as part of Avery's $36 million lawsuit. 
against Manitowoc County. In 1995, when Colburn worked in the county jail, he received a call from a Brown County detective who believed he had an inmate in jail, now known to be Gregory Allen, who committed a rape in Manitowoc County that someone else was in prison for. Colburn and his supervisors decided not to vigorously pursue the matter. Since Lank retired, Colburn was promoted to lieutenant, overseeing the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office detectives, a position he continues to hold. And he, he's one of the most shady-looking people to me, just from his interviews Who's and that? everything. Uh, Colburn. Okay, yeah. He, if, you, if he was in a... Maxwell always likes to talk about movies on this podcast for some reason. If he, if he was in a movie, like he would look like a serial killer, right? Like He just looks shifty. Like, common shifty, too. Like, it's just a weird, bizarre... Not to cast impressions just based on appearances, but, but yeah, bizarre. So let's move on to Sheriff Kenneth Peterson, Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office. Peterson was the sergeant who arrested Avery in the connection with the 1985 rape of Penny Bernston. In 2005, when Peterson was sheriff, DNA tests proved Avery was wrongly convicted, and the real rapist was Gregory Allen, a known sexual predator. After Teresa Hallback vanished on October 31, 2005, Peterson made Stephen Avery the focus of the investigation, ignoring other potential leads. After Avery's arrest, Peterson gave several television interviews before Avery went to trial, declaring that if Avery was released from custody, that he would kill again. He, w- he didn't even have a trial yet. Like, he has to have the right to a trial. Before the trial, that Avery would kill again and that allegations by the defense that detectives planted evidence to incriminate Avery were unproven. After six years as the sheriff, Peterson retired in 2007 after more than 30 years in the sheriff's department. In 2015, The Compass, a Catholic newspaper, the Green Bay Diocese, wrote a feature story on Peterson. Retired sheriff has a new beat. Peterson, now in his late 60s, remains active at the St. Francis of Assisi Parish in Manitowoc and serves as a member of the board of directors at The Haven, Manitowoc's first homeless shelter for men, The Compass reported. The newspaper also reported that Peterson volunteers at Peter's Pantry and the Capital Civic Center is a member of the Francis Creek Lions Club and serves on a local Crime Stoppers board. Interesting info on him. Next, let's move on to Ken Kratz. Former Calumet County District Attorney Kratz's successful prosecution of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey in the 2005 murder of Teresa Hallback became a crowning accomplishment. A town of Harrison resident, Kratz considered a run for Congress in 2008 against U.S. Representative Tom Petrie, a Republican. Kratz has been an assistant prosecutor in La Crosse County from 87 until 92 when Governor Tommy Thompson, that's an interesting name, appointed him the Calumet County District Attorney. In 2010, Katz resigned from office after the Associated Press reported he had sent more than 30 text messages in 2009 to a 26-year-old woman whose ex-boyfriend was being prosecuted by Kratz for domestic violence. I'm embarrassed and ashamed for the choices I made, Kratz said during a statement at the Calumet County Courthouse. Protecting the rights of crime victims has been my life's work. Kratz left the Fox Valley and relocated nearly six hours away to Superior, Wisconsin, where he opened a private practice and works as a defense attorney. Now, Kratz looks real shady, too. Have you seen... Like, I mean, I'm sure Maxwell has seen all his interviews, but what do you think of Kratz, Johnny? Yeah, uh, not many people like him. Um, I mean, he does, whether they were they knew what they were doing on the trial or not, it just 
even if they knew that he was not guilty, they just tried to make him look as guilty as possible. I don't know. He's just there's something about him that yeah, he seems he got off. so many negative reviews on Yelp, like people calling his office, <laughs> like he got like a half a star rating at his freaking company. <laughs> there's some people that just seem off, and uh, he's definitely one of them. Just saying. Yeah, Kathleen Zellner tweeted the other day. Um, let me just pull it up. There's a photo. She wrote, Ken Kratz. Uh, so the sweaty sexting ex-prosecutor Ken Kratz, who has never met the likes of my experts, is babbling again about junk science with a suspended law loss license. And then she has a screenshot where it says suspended, suspended, suspended. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's funny. They're going at it. Beefing on Twitter. <laughs> the new battleground is Twitter. The battleground of the future. So Michael O'Kelly was the private investigator retained by Kaczynski. Kaczynski was the public defender appointed to represent Brendan Dassey. Obviously, he got a lot of criticism. And he was replaced. Beca- and he also allowed Dassey to be interviewed by homicide investigators without an attorney present. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Yeah. So Michael O'Kelly pressured teenage defendant Brendan Dassey into admitting guilt and incriminating Avery in the murder of Hallback, even though Dassey insisted he was innocent. O'Kelly ordered Dassey to sign a form that required Dassey to admit his involvement in the Hallback murder. Today, O'Kelly touts himself as a forensic expert witness who specializes in understanding cellular phone data. O'Kelly regularly travels around the country and puts on seminars for personnel and law enforcement and the criminal justice field. In March 2015, O'Kelly was one of the featured panelists at Nebraska Criminal Defense Attorneys Association Conference hosted in Omaha. The brochure called O'Kelly's presentation Comprehensive Cell Tower Evidence Training. (laughs) Patrick Willis was the Manitowoc County judge who handled the courtroom proceedings in the Avery trial. After the verdict, Willis gave Avery a life prison sentence claiming Avery was probably the most dangerous person to ever set foot in his courtroom. That's a pretty interesting quote. So they've never had any real murderers or sexual assaulters step into the courtroom before? It's kind of a weird statement to make. Leading up to the trial, Willis rejected numerous pretrial motions raised by Avery's lawyers, Jerome Buting and Dean Strang. Notably, Willis denied their request to present evidence of an alternative suspect other than Avery's co-defendant, Brendan Dassey. Willis retired in October 2012 at the age of 62 after 15 years on the bench. Willis was a 1968 graduate of Lincoln High School in Manitowoc, and he served as a Manitowoc city attorney. In a 2012 interview, Willis said he planned to remain active by doing mediation. Mike Hallback is the brother of murder victim Teresa Hallback. Mike Hallback served as his family spokesperson during the court proceedings against Avery and Dassey. Hallback gave numerous interviews to the media, professing his family's praise for law enforcement's work. Hallback and his family continued to remain a forceful presence even during the appeals process. You know, does that strike you as kind of strange, the brother of the victim just immediately proclaiming to be the the family spokesperson and going on media all the time and just praising the police? Like, what if they're wrong? Like, shouldn't he want the real murderer brought to justice? And, of course, we'd be remiss not to mention the crazy conspiracy theories that say that Teresa Hallback is still alive or at least was alive for a, for a certain period of time after she was alleged to have been killed huh. and was possibly killed later. We'll go into all of the DNA evidence and testing 
in either the next episode or the one after that, and it's pretty extensive. Most people don't understand how all that works, but we will be digging deep and uncovering every stone. A jury of 12 of Stephen Avery's peers found him guilty, and that is good enough for us, Hallback told reporters. We are here for Teresa. She can't be here for herself. Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, they get an opportunity for a second chance. Teresa doesn't get the opportunity for a second chance. Hallback has worked for more than a decade for the Green Bay Packers. He is the team's director of football technology, according to Packers.com. According to the team website, Halbach has overseen the development and administration of football information systems, and Halbach transitioned the NFL franchise from paper to digital playbooks and from standard to high-definition video. Interesting. You know what's weird? He's talking about Teresa doesn't get a second chance, but if they're innocent, shouldn't they Shouldn't they get a second chance in court because they never got a real one? Yeah. If they're innocent. Mm-hmm. Of course he doesn't want to talk about that. Yeah, I'd like to know who actually did what they did exactly if it was like my family or whatever not just like hope that that's correct yeah like you're gonna put your faith in the in the unless they really believe everything but then they should phrase that that way it's phrasing is kind of i find his phrasing a little strange but maybe that's just me so jerry pagel was the sheriff of calumet county who oversaw the criminal investigation into Teresa halback's murder after eight years as sheriff pagel retired in 2010 at the age of 60. So let's move on to Ryan Hilligas. So this is the ex-boyfriend of Teresa Hallback. So Maxwell's really uh, suspicious of Hilligas, are you? I don't know who he is or she is. <laughs> Fair enough. When she disappeared, Hilligas organized a volunteer search effort to find Halbach or her vehicle, a missing RAV4. Hilligas also testified during the Avery trial that he visited Halbach at her house in rural Calumet County on October 30th, the day before she disappeared, but he could not remember the time. He also testified that he accessed her cell phone records after she went missing. Hilligas testified during the Avery trial that the investigators did not consider him a suspect, and they did not ask him any questions about his whereabouts surrounding Teresa's disappearance. See, that's bizarre as well. If you're doing a real investigation, you always at least look at the boyfriend or ex-boyfriend or the husband, because usually it's them. Mm-hmm. So not to say you should suspect them immediately, but you should at least investigate to clear them. He's saying none of this was done. According to his Facebook profile, Hilligas studied nursing at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. Now 35, Hilligas lives in Waukesha County and has been a licensed registered nurse in Wisconsin since 2005, according to public records. So let's move on to Scott Blodorn, roommate of Teresa Halbach at the time of her disappearance. The two rented a farmhouse in rural Calumet County from Halbach's parents. According to trial testimony, Teresa and Blodorn were not romantically involved. About a week after Halbach vanished, Blodorn teamed up with Hilligas to organize a volunteer effort of the region trying to find any clues in Teresa's disappearance. He and Hilligas met with Pamela Sturm, this is Teresa's cousin, and gave her a camera after she suggested that she wanted to search the Avery salvage yard with her adult daughter in the hopes of finding any sign of Teresa. Now, do these people have a warrant to just go on they his just property? Went on. They just they're trespassing? Were they charged with that? <laughs> Ten minutes later. Shortly after arrival, Sturm located the RAV4 buried under several tree branches. According to his LinkedIn profile, Blodorn has worked in Madison since 2012 in conservation energy. From 2009 to 2012, he lived in Arizona and worked as an energy auditor. Maxwell, you got all these people on, uh, you memorized all these people, right? For the next episode, you'll know exactly who's who. 
Why don't you just write it down while I was you another cheat sheet. I am, but it's just rough. It's hard. There's it's only just, like 10 people. It's just easier if you watch the scene. Like, well, he's not going to remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> but if he has a sheet in front of him that he can just... He has like a printout of all these yeah. people's faces. With pictures, like a big sheet just for Maxwell. <laughs> Maxwell's wall. <laughs> Mark Weigert and Tom Fassbender, the co-lead detectives on the Avery case. Weigert remains a high-ranking lieutenant at the Calumet County Sheriff's Department in Chilton. Fassbender has since retired as a special agent from the Wisconsin Division of Criminal Investigations. In 2008, the Wisconsin Association of Homicide Investigators presented Fassbender and Weigert with the statewide organization's prestigious Meritorious Service Award. This case exemplifies cooperation between law enforcement agencies, stated former Wisconsin Attorney General J.B. Van Hollen. Fassbender joined the Wisconsin Department of Criminal Investigation in 1985, coincidence, and has since retired from Wisconsin's law enforcement. He moved to Nevada, where he worked hotel security in Las Vegas. So now it does really seem that there might be some kind of collusion on the, and conspiracy on the part of the state government as well. Like how many people know other people? We went down some dark rabbit holes in our previous episode with allegations of a club where state officials or police are involved in some kind of uh, satanic club and worship and sacri- human sacrifices. How far up the ladder does this go if this theory is true? Do you believe in this theory, Maxwell? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> It's a good thing you're on a podcast. You really give your thoughts. You really go in depth, adding some critical analysis. Just going back to the, uh, you know, when they found the key in the house, right? So I found some interviews with uh, Stephen Avery. He let the news crew come in to his house. You know, this is after October 31st. It's like maybe the second or third of November. Uh, and yeah, their news crews. They're doing an interview with him, talking to his parents, him. So there's probably a lot more other people going in and out of his house. So when the police did search his house the first time, didn't find a key, maybe somebody did go in and out of the house and just threw that key there. Mm. And it maybe not and even they didn't the police. Set him up. Yeah, because yeah, the, uh, the idea was that the car wasn't actually there. Yeah, and then it showed up the day after or yeah. something like that. So whoever like did the planting could have entered his house, and maybe it wasn't the police. Yeah, we'll go over think. we'll go over all of the evidence found, exactly how it was found, and how it ties in with everything in a follow up episode as well. I'm just gonna round out this uh, all of these persons so Maxwell can keep up. We have Dean Strang and Jerome Buting. So these are the distinguished Wisconsin trial lawyers. Both men have garnered national acclaim since last month's release of the Netflix documentary that chronicled their efforts to vigorously defend Stephen Avery, centering their defense on their suspicion that Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office planted false evidence against Avery in order to secure his conviction and avoid the potential of paying out a $36 million wrongful imprisonment judgment in connection with the agency's erroneous arrest of Avery. For a 1985 rape he did not commit. Strang specializes in trial litigation in Madison at Strange Bradley, LLC. Buting works at the criminal defense law firm of Buting, Williams, and Stilling with offices in Brookfield and Glendale, Wisconsin. So in the next episode, we'll go over the exact conflicts of interest, the exact supposed alleged planting of evidence, how it was discovered, by whom, and when, chain of custody, all of these critical details that the people that believe Avery is guilty simply point to and say, oh, well, his blood was there. 
oh, oh, they found this, they found that, without actually looking at the circumstances in which it was found. So I have a question for people who just adamantly believe he's guilty. Because we don't know for sure, so it's different to say, oh, maybe he's guilty, maybe he's not. I mean, we don't know. But to just say, oh, well, they found the evidence, so it must mean he's guilty, and completely ignore the conflicts of interest in this case, who discovered what and how, and how it was tested and by whom. Don't you think that's kind of important, Johnny? Yeah, it's definitely important, not just uh, assuming things. Maxwell? Agreed. <laughs> so, this was our overview of the people involved and a quick timeline rundown, and we're starting to delve into the hallback aspect of Stephen Avery's long-standing troubles with the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. We hope you enjoyed another episode of Mindshock True Crime. If you like our podcast, you can donate to our PayPal. Just check the link in the description. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. If you like this video, like the video. And don't forget to chime in. Let us know what you think, why you think it. And we will try to figure this all out. This is Bruce McGuire signing off. And Maxwell Powers. And Johnny Mills. Have a good night.